Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for all those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. We are a production of PolicyForum.net. We're based at Crawford School of Public Policy, which is Asia and the Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And if you're keen to get into a policy-facing role, check out our great range of short courses and degrees covering a huge range of policy areas from security to climate change with all points in between. And you can find out all the information and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. Now, last week on the pod, we had a look at the link between the climate crisis and the bushfires in Australia, and we discussed the terrible human and environmental costs of those fires. This week, though, we want to take a look at how Australia's policymakers might go about addressing it. Over the last couple of months, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been under increasing pressure to put in place stronger climate policies. Morrison, for his part, has promised a greater focus on adaptation measures while stressing the need to secure the Australian economy. For many, that suggests a continuation of policies such as the $2 billion poured into the Emissions Reduction Fund to help businesses and farmers reduce emissions, a scheme that the OECD criticised as piecemeal in a report published last year. The OECD also warned Australia to step up its emissions cuts, saying that the country will fall short of its 2030 emissions target without a major effort to move to a low-carbon model. So today we want to ask, has the dial shifted in the wake of the bushfires? What is now on the table for the major parties after the crisis? And what should Australia's climate policies look like? And given recent events and Australia's political landscape, what might they look like? And to tackle these questions, we've got a fantastic panel. Joining us is Frank Yotto. Frank is a professor at Crawford School. He's also the director of the Centre of Climate and Energy Policy. Dr. Tiana O'Donnell is the executive director of Future Earth Australia. Megan Fitzharris is a senior fellow in health policy and leadership at the ANU College of Health and Medicine. And she's also a former Labour member for the ACT and was the ACT's Minister for Health and Wellbeing. And last but not least, Quentin Grafton, who is a professor at Crawford School. He's also Editor-in-Chief of Policy Forum and the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governments. So welcome, Tiana. Thank you for having me. Hello, Quentin. Great to see you. Great to be here, Martin. Welcome back, Megan. Thank you for having me. And Frank, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi. Pleasure. 
So the government is under growing pressure to tackle climate change. And in response, we've seen a bit of a shift in rhetoric from the Prime Minister and members of the Cabinet in recent weeks. But will that lead to tangible policy change? We'll get into that in a moment. But while we're going to be talking about climate policy in the current political landscape, to start with, I wanted to get you all to give us a bit of a reference point for our discussion, a sort of climate north star, if you will. So a question for all of you. In an ideal world which is free of political or ideological barriers, what should Australia's climate policy look like? Uh, the North Star is really um, the, uh, the clear idea that we need to get to net zero emissions, uh, both globally and in every single country, ultimately. Um, and, and everything flows from there. So what we need is a clear idea how we will get to, to net zero, how we'll get there in a space of just a few decades. Um, and from that flows, uh, you know, uh, understanding uh, how much we should be uh, willing to to be prepared to to pay for that, right? And what's the dynamically optimal path for the transition away from a fossil fuel heavy system to one that works on renewables, negative uh, emissions technologies, agriculture that's climate smart, and all the rest of it. Um, and from that, you know, our economic analysis tells us very clearly. We will want to go in uh, pretty hard and we will want to go in as efficiently as possible. Uh, and the ideal policy instrument would be a comprehensive price signal on carbon emissions, all greenhouse gas emissions throughout the economy. We want political uh, stability around that so that investors can be sure that the investment in low carbon technology now will pay back over time. Now, does anyone want to disagree with that or throw anything further into the mix? What about you, Quentin? No, I absolutely agree with Frank. We need to have appropriate targets. Those targets are much, much more ambitious than we've signed up to in terms of the Paris Agreement that we had in December of 2015. So we're talking about 45 to 60% by 2030, a decarbonized economy essentially by 2050 and beyond. And that's not just Australia, that's on a global scale. Certainly all the rich countries need to be doing that. If we don't get that, we're going to have uh, uh, what I would call catastrophic climate change. So absolutely immediate, the, the need is, and the action is also needed immediately. So those are the targets. How do we get there? Well, multiple pathways. There's not one pathway. We actually did have a, a carbon price uh, up until 2014 that was removed by the coalition government. Let's go back to having a carbon price, and it can come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. Uh, but what the point is, is that they have the appropriate incentives, the appropriate prices associated with carbon dioxide emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and across all sectors eventually. And that's what we need. It's, it's a no-brainer. We've got to do it, and uh, we, it has to be done. So let's pick apart some of those barriers to get to that kind of North Star, that ideal climate policy. One of them is a sort of very deliberate choice of language, which sort of steers the country away from the kind of action that, that you both talked about there. Uh, Frank, perhaps if I can start with you, and this was a point made by Vanessa Moss in our Facebook group. Why is there such an emphasis from the Prime Minister and from the Cabinet on adaptation instead of mitigation? Yeah, we, we need 
both, obviously. You know, I mean, we already see uh, climate change impacts unfolding. Much of the uh, climate change uh, over over coming decades is already locked in. And so we will need to respond to that. Uh, and that goes, you know, from agriculture through sea level rise, through health, um, you know, uh, to obviously uh, natural disasters and emergency management. Um, so an emphasis on adaptation is absolutely justified. No problem with it. And in fact, that's a very welcome development over these last few weeks that, uh, you know, there's a much clearer acknowledgement from the Australian federal government that climate change exists and that therefore we need to adapt to it. But of course, that's, that's um, you know, that's not addressing the root cause. The root cause is greenhouse gas emissions and we cannot adapt our way out of climate change, right? We also need to arrest slow climate change and then arrest climate change over time. Um, why are we seeing this, this, uh, you know, very strong bifurcation between these two or this distinction in, 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 in a political approach to it? Well, you know, the government presently is very heavily locked into a position of saying, you know, um, we will meet the Paris target and we won't do more than that. Um, and behind that sits very obviously, I think, yeah, government have been clear about this. Um, the idea that Australian fossil fuel producing and exporting industries, um, deserve protection in in the view of the, in in that particular uh, view of the Australian economy um and that you know pushing for strong mitigation goes against the interests of these existing industries that really in a nutshell is where we're at Mika, let me bring you in here. We all know that Australia needs to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but why has that been so difficult to achieve politically uh well i'd like to build a bit on what, what Frank and Quentin said, whether whether Northern Star is, um, you can see models of that around the world and around the country. And I would say, for example, the ACT government's uh, released climate change strategy last year was um, was a really good model to begin with. The ACT is a different community and a different uh, economy and a different landscape than, than the rest of the country. But nonetheless, it, it would be a good place to start. Uh, and I think it highlights the role that state and territory governments and local governments have played and will continue to play, which is excellent. Um, they also have quite different links into the community. And I think one of the things, um, I agree with uh, the what, the real question is the how. And it's really difficult. I mean, it's 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 inherently a, a wicked problem, a complex problem. So the how, the com- I would like to see uh, in an ideal world that the community discussion really changes. I think the last few weeks will have an impact on that, uh, how people respond. Because really, when we talk about reducing emissions and transitioning economies, we are asking individuals to acknowledge and accept some kind of change in their own lives. And people's lives are are complicated. Uh, People have uh, various emergencies for them uh, on their doorstep every day, health, uh, employment, uh, you know, raising kids, uh, looking after older members of your family, a whole range of things. So what does it mean for individuals? Uh, Are we asking them to change everything about their lives? And I think that's where inertia can can um, can hit communities uh, is where we're asking them uh, to make a change. So I think uh, that there's a real issue in how we get there and how we're going to change that community debate. And and politics is um, about many things. I think the analysis of the politics often misses um, the links that politicians have with their own communities. They are they are. It's fundamental to democracy that they are representative of their communities. What they said last year, they have to explain very clearly why they might have changed that view. So 
politically the government went into last year's election, which it won to everyone's enormous surprise, I think including their own, uh, they will have to change their conversation with their own communities. That is not easy if you've maintained the same conversation for the last decade. I would like to say in an optimistic world, everyone should encourage them to do that rather than to beat them around the head because of it, because that's what makes politics really hard. Uh, minister backflips on climate change position uh, is how it would be represented as opposed to minister takes a, you know, or member takes a considered view and, and talks to their own community about how things have changed and how they want uh, the policy position to change. So politics is is hard. Uh, politics is also about executive decision-making. Um, so you've got that link uh, residing in a, in a politician, which is both your link to your community. And if you're a member of government and if you're a member of the executive, your executive decision-making responsibilities, those all of those things get put together as politics. They're quite distinctly different things. Scott Morrison has repeatedly stressed the importance of preserving Australia's economy when it comes to tackling climate change. Tiana, why is there always this sort of either-or type argument? Is there a way of making substantial climate policy whilst ensuring a strong economy? I think so. Um, it's not without its challenges, though, in a country like Australia. Um, but to pick up on, on Megan's point where she was driving there, we've talked about the how and the what. What's critical is the who and the audience that particular messages are being delivered to. Um, it was quite an affront, I think, for many people uh, at last year's federal election to see uh, people from different jurisdictions coming into regional towns and telling those people that their futures were going to be dramatically different and they needed to uh, fall in line and support climate policy. What you're really saying there to those people is your children won't have jobs in this community, um, your town may suffer or be uh, dislocated or, or, or maybe not even exist because of changes to the economy. Uh, and people resist that. So um, it's no surprise that there was a bit of backlash towards some of those messages. Uh, in terms of future-proofing the Australian economy, um, I'm sure the economists uh, in this room and, and indeed elsewhere would have particular and, and specific things to offer on that point. But there are interesting things that younger people in particular are right on point with. So ideas around circular economy, uh, engaging with Indigenous mob and groups, and, and really thinking through what it means to not just transition, but to transform the way we think about capitalism, the way we interact in different communities, the way politics, uh, social, cultural, economic and other factors feed into the, the challenge and opportunity that climate change um, presents. Well, let's stay with the economy for a second, because one of the areas that show great promise, particularly for Australia, is renewable energy sources. The Climate Institute estimates that with energy investments and strong climate policies, Australia could create 34,000 new jobs by 2030. And given what Tiana said there, Frank, are those types of benefits being communicated well enough to the public? 
Oh, I think they're increasingly well known, right? And and uh, the the focus on renewables is absolutely right for Australia. Um, you know, renewables is the future for energy. Uh, we will see almost invariably uh, an almost uh, entirely renewable electricity supply system because simply wind and solar are now the cheapest options for any new build, and they're beginning to uh, to to seriously compete with the existing fossil fuel powered uh, stations as well. Um, we can also see, uh, we will probably see a massive increase in total electricity supply. All of that additional electricity supply will come from renewables. Why do we need more electricity? Well, because in a, in a decarbonization trajectory, uh, we will electrify anything that we can, uh, in particular transport, so electric transport, but also heating, for example, industrial process and so on. And then uh, comes comes a thing that might be even even bigger than that, perhaps much much bigger, um, and that is the potential for renewables based energy exports from Australia. So uh, the natural prerequisites for for clean energy supply are as good in Australia as anywhere in the world, um, and better than in most places in in Asia and East Asia. Uh, and so that puts us in a position to potentially provide a large amount uh, of of energy exports, and and therein lies a very attractive economic future, of course. So that means switching off coal-based energy. Will the transition be a smooth one? Can we just go one day, okay, well, we're not doing coal anymore, and now let's Renewables, hooray, everyone's got jobs. Well, transition is never easy, is it? Um, but it's not the first transition, won't be the last transition. You know, remember the wool industry? It still exists, you know, nowhere near as large as it used to be. And, you know, there was a lot of pain around that transition, but, you know, the economy doesn't falter because of it. Um, and, you know, I think this is a good conversation actually about the role that governments uh, should, should take in that, in that transition. And, you know, at, at two extreme ends of the spectrum are one position for governments to say nothing should ever change. Let's try and you know put the finger in the dike, support the dying, in the, support the declining industry. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum is is to embrace change and say okay, so we know this is rising, this is declining. Let's support that transition and let's support the communities and and workers in the industries that are invariably on the way down. Quentin, I want to turn to you with a, a little more on the sort of political rhetoric. One of the points that we often hear repeated coming out of the government is that single countries alone reducing emissions won't do much to tackle climate change. Why do we hear that kind of language coming out? And what can we do to sort of reshape the very politicised narrative surrounding climate change? Look, there's a lot of post-truths when it comes to climate change uh, that have been around for decades. And in Australia, as you point out, Man, the issue that we're a relatively small proportion of overall emissions, 1.3% approximately. The other one is... Um, you know, the heavy lifters in the context of emissions reduction should be the ones who are making the most uh, emissions. This destroys the economy. I mean, the list goes on and on. If you go through each of those one by one, you'll see that there, there's very little substance to them. So first of all, as Frank has highlighted, it will not destroy the economy. Clearly, the transition means that jobs will change. And that's where governments are really important. There are vulnerable people and they need to be assisted. But I, I think people are getting it. I think they, they should get it, given the bushfires we've had in 2019-20, that people are vulnerable anyway. And poor people are getting hit in all sorts of different ways. And that requires government support. And so I think that's really a key part to it. The fact about the economy, well, we know that there are huge costs associated with the bushfires, for example, which has been, of course, connected to climate change, a drier and, of course, a hotter 
Australia. So we need to do something in that context as well. And and so there are various estimates now about the cost of the bushfires. Some economist has suggested it could be $100 billion. Certainly, it's in the tens of billions of dollars. And if we look at the cost to the economy going forward of climate change and the current trends at a global scale, you know, we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars of losses to the Australian economy. By comparison, the cost of transition is less than $100 billion. So, so it's a no-brainer from the economics. It's a no-brainer in the context that we have to do something. And in, con- in the context of Australia's fair share, so to speak, if Australia, a rich country with the advantages that it does have, chooses not to un- implement the appropriate targets and, the, and, and actually do the mitigation necessary, how can we expect other countries to? We have to be part of a group here. If it's everyone for himself, whether it's in Australia or whether it's every country for, for itself – we're clearly not going to get the the outcome. So yes, it's a challenge. We know that climate change mitigation is a challenge. That's why we're talking about it in 2020. You know, we we had an agreement in 1992 to do something on this, and we're still talking about it. So yes, it's a challenge, but to, it's a cop out for Australia to say that it, it uh, it's a small emitter. It's in the top 20. It has Australia has leverage. Australia has done a number of different things in the past and successfully in the context of trade negotiations. It can certainly do something on climate change, and it's missing that opportunity and the cost to Australia is enormous. So the bottom line for me, again, it's a, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, we have to do something and it is in our interest to do something. And anyone to say anything different to that, in my, my view, is, is lacking the evidence or lacking the, the smarts uh, to, to, to look at it in an analytical and logical way. And if I may just add, you know, the 1.3% number, it's, the question is also about the, the proportionate influence that Australia has in, on, on the world stage. And that in, in these kind of spheres, it's much larger than 1.3%. We're one country that's extremely visible, one country that is really at the forefront of climate change impacts, right? And other countries, yeah, the climate, the UN climate conference, for example, right? Um, yeah, every person who's not Australian is asking you, well, guys, you know, what's going on, right? Why are you not pushing strongly for a good global outcome here, right? A strong global outcome in your own national interest because you're so exposed, right? And so um, in terms of the the effect of, of the good example that we could be setting and the relatively bad example that we are setting right now, uh, the, the influence globally is quite significant. And not only that, we can't keep relying on the insurance sector and the reinsurance sector to to assist people uh, who are negatively impacted by climate event after climate event. Um, at some point, the government will become the insurer of last resort and it will cost them far more in that instance than what it will to do something proactively now, or as you said, Quinton, even 20 or 30 years ago. So let's take a quick break here. I think that's given us, given us some good insights on what some of the barriers to uh, to getting to that ideal climate change policy is. But when we come back, we'll look at what policies might actually be possible given some of those barriers that we've talked about. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
Welcome back. So in part one, we had a look at ideal world climate policy and we took a look at what's stopping Australia getting there. But of course, Otto von Bismarck described politics as the art of the possible, the attainable, the next best. So what is possible in Australia, given some of the constraints that we've highlighted? Frank, perhaps if I can turn to you first, what do you think, looking into your crystal ball, Australian climate policy might look like in six months or 12 months' time? Are we likely to see a shift? And if so, in what way? Yeah, so look, um, there, there is still on the table the possibility um, of, of a policy shift, right? So uh, a big crisis like the bushfires creates the opportunity uh, for, for change, like you pointed out, Megan. Um, but it, you know, the, the government's quite heavily locked into a position they took to the election. And, and that's what we're probably going to see reflected until the next election, right? So to me, the, the, the question is really what um, what we'll see in, in, in the positioning and the lead up to the next election, then of course, the next election outcome. So let's think after the next election um, or the lead up to it. Um, I think a realistic prospect for, a, you know, sensible climate policy in Australia has a sector by sector approach, not... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Uh, an economy-wide carbon price because that could be labeled a carbon tax and the wounds from that, you know, that, that really poisonous debate that has haunted us for, you know, six, seven, eight years now, um, are really still too deep, right? And so, well, you know, we could see something where we, where we have a, a strong uh, signal supporting uh, rapid renewables deployment in electricity, where we have, you know, government supported, you know, in a, in a collaboration between federal and states uh, for, for the phase out of coal-fired power. Uh, where we have a price signal on carbon emissions in industry. In fact, the legislative framework for that is already there. The safeguards mechanism, it's just been inactive. That could be activated uh, much more in agriculture, not just by way of subsidizing farmers and landholders uh, on a project-by-project basis using taxpayers' money, but using regulation. Um, to to achieve the right outcomes, uh, strong signalling for the uptake of electric vehicles. Car companies need to know that Australia will be a good market in order for, you know, a choice of models at affordable prices to come in, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I would put forward that that is uh, a realistic uh, trajectory with, uh, you know, uh, moving to a more unified framework with a carbon price down the track. Quentin, in politics, we sometimes hear of this idea of the Overton window, which is the sort of shifting range of policies which are politically acceptable to the broader public at any given time. Have the events over the last couple of months shifted Australia's Overton window? And if so, how's that likely to play out over the next year? What do you think? Well, I think I'll be in the minority here. I don't think it is going to shift in the context of the policies, certainly for this current federal government term. 
I think what we're going to see, and hopefully I'm wrong, so I want to be proven wrong, I think we're going to get uh, more radicalization. So I think what you're going to get is those people who have been affected by the bushfires. It's in the multiples of millions uh, in, in eastern Australia, whether it's directly through the fires or through the smoke haze or for a variety of other factors. And those people, I think, are going to be much more engaged and they're going to want to have some changes in policies. And on the other side, I think you're going to get uh, the, the other side that haven't walked away <laughs> from this debate and we can name whoever they are, but I don't think it's very productive in this conversation. So there's the other side and they're going to, uh, they're going to double down in the context of wanting not to have change. So you, you, you're going to have almost those two solitudes and I think that's an unhealthy state of affairs, but I think that's where we're going to end up. Now, where does that take us, as you suggested, in terms of policies? Well, I think ultimately we will have options on the table, perhaps for the for the next election. I hope for the next election, and people will need to make their choices. And the people who made choices on May eighteenth of twenty nineteen, they they put climate change as a third or fourth or fifth order priority for themselves, um, <clears throat> even though the, they may have considered it to be an issue. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, we had the election, the by election in Wentworth uh, in October of uh, of two thousand and eighteen, and of course. In May 2019, we had Warringah with um, Tony Abbott losing his seat because of a climate change issue with an independent coming in. But those are few. Those are really are exceptions. So I think those exceptions will have to change. I'm not so sure that will happen. Uh, so I'm not so confident that we'll get uh, change, at least in the in the uh, in the short run. And I think ultimately the change, and I think Tatiana made this point as well, and Megan is that the issue is is the community. It has to be a bottom up approach here. We can't rely on the on the le- the great leader or the whoever we we want to invest our faith in. I think we have to invest our faith in ourselves, and we have to engage in terms of a realistic sets of policies that brings about this transition. And we have to engage in the millions because that is the only way, in my view, we're going to bring about effective change in Australia when it comes to climate change. Megan, do you think that community views have shifted on climate policy over the last couple of months? And if so, are government policies likely to follow along? I mean, clearly, Quentin is sceptical that they will. He is um, more of an optimist, I think, a willful optimist um, um, at the best of times. I think one thing that's happened is that we're still in holiday mode. I, I'm, I'm really interested to see when kids go back to school, when Parliament starts to sit again, what the debate looks like then. The media usually don't have a lot to cover over this period. Um, everything is interspersed. Even the Australian Open is now interspersed with how that can support the bushfire recovery. People's experiences of the last few months will be will be. Uh, going out to their own um, MPs. Um, I think the dynamic at COAG will be really interesting um, and the debate and discussion around Royal Commission or inquiries and how we respond, the debate around uh, how you bring in, for example, the Defence Force in a situation like this and you know, that fundamentally changes um, some long-standing arrangements. So politically it will play out in a number of ways. I think communities often – there are there's certainly a climate change activist um, a group in the community uh, who often, I think, seek to speak for everyone in the community, which I think, you know, broadly speaking, sometimes um, there are sort of regular folk that, you know, the broad middle class may be engaged in that, maybe not. But what does climate change mean for them? 
And I think that's where the politics real. What does it mean for them? Does it mean, I remember we've had debates here, we've had debates in the ACT about single-use plastics, banning plastic bags. We're looking at coffee cups. Um, but then it gets to, you know, where, whether you use public transport, well, you, the waste in your own home, um, you know, ethical consumption, um, whether your job is going to be there next year. Um, one example that's often used here is if we move our electric, uh, our bus fleet to electric vehicles, um, we have a whole lot of people who are skilled uh, working on diesel buses uh, that may need to, you know, substantially retrain. Those are the, the those are the real lived experiences of political change. Uh, we know what many of them are. Uh, so I think that I don't think anyone yet knows what it's going to look like. I hope that the sensible leadership in in the current government has been looking for a circuit breaker, and I hope this is it. Sadly, um, that this this recent crisis, but the lived experience of millions of people about, oh, is this what climate change means? Is this what it actually looks like? Where do you go next summer for your Christmas holidays if you live in Canberra? There were fires in the in well, You the, go in the to mountains. Hawaii, I believe. Yeah. Or Fiji. <laughs> Where do you go? I mean, th- these are the <laughs> lived experiences of people, and I think they have an impact in politics. Uh, so when schools go back, uh, all of these things affect the, the political dynamic, and, and we don't yet know what it looks like come February. I hope it'll change, and I think it will change. I don't know what it looks like, but I also think COAG is a really important uh, political body to to see what happens there and what what state premiers and territory leaders what they do when they meet with the prime minister. Tiana, you'd expect that the government might come under increased pressure from parts of the business community over the next year or so for greater climate action. What role could business play in developing stronger climate policies? Well, I think business, broadly defined, has been putting um, various pressures on federal policy in particular for quite some time, uh, and and that's fairly well documented and well known. I would not want to be in the insurance business now. I wouldn't have wanted to be in the insurance business 10 years ago, and indeed uh, reinsurers like Swiss Re are uh, sending very strong signals to the Australian market which is that they are either going to price signal or withdraw completely. That has real and serious ramifications and consequences for the so-called quiet Australians who are are perhaps not so quiet anymore, can't be categorised as activists and who have suffered significant uh, damage and or loss uh, just in this past season alone. So if we start to think about just taking the insurance sector and we start to think about that and extrapolate that to other sectors, uh, I think there is a strong desire from the private sector or the business community for consistent policy from the federal government, particularly around investment in renewables, renewables rather, um, but also around resilience and adaptation and what that actually means. It's to me as an adaptation um, scholar and, and sometimes expert. Uh, It doesn't mean building dams. Uh, It means a whole range of other things and it must absolutely have at its centre vulnerable people and vulnerable communities and how they are going to respond. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And the the word resilience is misused in all Mm. sorts of contexts, but it it actually does mean something. It means the ability to bounce back in the context of some negative shock, whatever it might be, bushfires, flooding or whatever. And yes, it's important that we do have resilience, but you need to keep in mind that the poor and vulnerable have much less resilience than the people who have higher wealth and income. 
You know, so in the context of the bushfires, uh, my family, our household spent quite a lot of money in trying to get purifiers. Now, people on low income wouldn't be able to pay the money to get those purifiers. So that's just one example of how higher income people are able to protect themselves in some ways that, that poor people can't. And certainly communities, you can't pick up an entire community, you know, that doesn't have any water. I mean, at that, you're stuck in that community. That's your country. So, so there's a, there's clearly people who are suffering in all sorts of ways. And not just from the bushfires. There's a water emergency going on right now as well. And and those sorts of people need to be taken care of in this adaptation story. And what I'm afraid of, I'm not saying it's going to happen. What I'm afraid of is that the uh, there's a consistency in the context of the last few years is that when there's money on the table and it needs to be spent and put taken to communities, the people who get the money are the ones who are the ones who, who, who either have the squeakiest wheels or the ones who are the most connected to the people who make those decisions. So for example, when it comes to climate adaptation, you can see with sea level rise issues that the people who own homes right on the coast might want to take a good share of that money <laughs> to look after themselves and nothing wrong with that but 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 are they the number one priority is this uh, the question you'd want to ask so so those are the sorts of things we have to engage with we've got a democracy here that is not delivering in all sorts of dimensions for us not just in climate change so we can't expect climate change adaptation and any resilience to actually deliver if we're not getting delivery in other ways as well so i think there's a bigger picture issue which is perhaps not appropriate for today but I think that's the that's the nub of the the problem for, for, from from my perspective and, and indeed that logic extrapolates to the global scene there was a discussion earlier around Australia um, being a small player globally that is not true but not only that um, there are vulnerable people all around the world who will suffer the impacts and consequences of a changing climate so we uh, should take that seriously Frank, I'm interested in the role that international pressure might play on Australia's climate policies over the coming year. And in fact, we had a question from Wesley Morgan on Twitter at WTM Pacific, who asked, what are the implications of the fires for relations with the Pacific? Pacific Island states offered support to tackle the fires, but also asked Australia to join their advocacy at the UN for global actions on emissions. So how's that relationship going to change in light of the last couple of months? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the international pressure on Australia is increasing greatly. Um, so the perception internationally of what Australia is doing is not a positive one. So we're seen as one of the countries that are trying to water down uh, the ambition of, of global climate action on the Paris Agreement in, in particular. Uh, there are great tensions over climate change with our Pacific neighbours, right? I mean, the Pacific Island Forum and the, the discussion about climate change there last, last year was an unmitigated disaster for for Australia, for the Australian government. Uh, we, you know, a lot of relationships were really damaged uh, by that. Um, but, you know, I mean, there's, it, it, this is probably, you know, realistically not the biggest foreign policy priority for, for most Australian governments. But, you know, uh, the European Union, for example, have have their noses out of joint in a major way in terms of how Australia is positioning on climate change. And that is reflected very directly in the current negotiations about a an a EU-Australia free trade agreement. So the, the European Union have been quite clear that, uh, you know, they, they – 
they're linking quite directly uh, the existence of a free trade agreement and the provisions therein to Australia's stance on climate change policy. Um, similar negotiations are going on with the UK, right? UK free trade agreement. And of course, with the UK, you've got a government, uh, yeah, a, a very conservative government that is nevertheless taking a very proactive um, position on, on climate change, right? And that's also pressure uh, on, on the Australian government. So, of course, solace there internationally lies in the United States, right? So, you know, uh, all the way with Trump kind of thing on these issues. Uh, but of course, you know, the Trump administration will also not last forever. And so you know, to take a, a sort of minimalist position on, on climate change is uh, is very costly internationally. Um, and, you know, I would contend also undermines future economic possibilities because, you know, if we want to be, you know, a, a, a big player in, in a clean energy economy of the future, right, then, then we better position to, to support clean energy efforts. But to pick up again on Wesley's question there, how is Australia's relationship going to change with the Pacific? Mm. Well, you would, you would hope that there will be, um, a, a, a warming of relationships over, over climate change. And there, there is every possibility of doing so, right? So, so right now we're in a difficult position because now Australian government has also announced that we're no longer going to fund the Green Climate Fund, which is the, the, the global vehicle for channeling money into developing countries for climate change action. Um, we were very active on that forum for a number of years. We contributed. Uh, we joined chairs. We, we, we had the executive director who was in Australia for a while. And the Pacific benefited from that because Australia advocated on behalf of the, of the Pacific no longer. Um, however, you know, you can expect that there will be increased measures under the aid program uh, that will be directed at, at climate change efforts in the Pacific. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really all around a good idea. Megan, one of the things we haven't really touched on much today is the issue of health. Um, but the opposition health spokesperson, Chris Bowen, called for a national climate change health strategy in an op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald uh, earlier this week. What is health policy likely to look like in light of what the last two months have been like over the coming year? Well, I certainly think, and in, 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 in my current role, it has been something we've been actively involved in through through the College of Health and Medicine here at the ANU. Um, certainly, there will be um, a, a new disc, a new part of the discussion: the impact of air quality uh, and lingering poor air quality um, on communities, and um, particularly here in Canberra, but but throughout the country, we've seen it in Sydney and Melbourne, and and clearly down down the coast and regionally. That's a, that's a that's an area that um, I don't think anyone was really anticipating. I think looking at this summer, people were looking at heat. I mean, there are cl there is clear evidence of the impact of a changing climate on people's health, how we strengthen our health system response. I hope there's opportunities uh, within that to strengthen the role of um, uh, those local providers in primary care, in pharmacies, um, in community-based health clinics. There's certainly some research to get underway on the impacts on people's uh, on people's physical health and their mental health. Uh, and I think that will also be incredibly important because people will need to be ready again. If, if you think about what the next 12 months looks like and if it's going to repeat again, uh, I think the level of anxiety that people will have is, is very high. I think we saw some incredible community action at the time, particularly our knowledge here about what happened on the South Coast. Uh, in particular, you saw communities come together. I think we need to strengthen those existing community frameworks. But there is a, a very comprehensive sort of framework around climate action and health 
both in terms of the delivery of health and the responsibility of the healthcare sector to reduce its own emissions, you know, greener hospitals and, you know, the use of um, waste, for example, in the health sector is fairly, <laughs> fairly astounding, but necessary for safety and quality of healthcare. So there's some challenges uh, in that as well. But I think people are starting to think uh, about climate change and health. I'm not personally yet sure about whether or not this area of it will affect your health um, is a way of uh, bringing the community on board. I think, again, it's it's another level of anxiety that people will have. And I, I'm concerned that uh, on a personal level that if you, if you say, well, our way into this debate with individuals now is to tell them their health is at risk. I think that's a that's a live question about whether we take climate change policy down that path. We're always looking for the new way to convince community. I, I think health clearly has an impact, but I'm, I personally um, would like to see that debate uh, develop a little bit more around whether we use health impacts as a, another pathway to convince people uh, that climate change action is needed. I think there are lots of ways we can do that. Now, we are going to have to draw this conversation to a close, but there is one question I would like to put to all of you before we do so. I mean, clearly, the Prime Minister and the government are going to have some tough choices to make over the next year and beyond. So what single piece of advice would you give to Scott Morrison if he were here with us in the studio now? Don't panic, he actually isn't. But perhaps if we could start with you, Megan. Um, Seize this moment and uh, work with state and territory counterparts and ensure that your ministers through all of their councils um, at a ministerial level work with their counterparts. Um, That would be advice, uh, but I think the community will be looking for the Prime Minister to seize this opportunity and make some progress. Tiana, you have the Prime Minister's ear right now. What are you going to say to him? Uh, I would strongly support Megan's sentiments there, but I would also add that mitigation and adaptation go together. They are um, opposite sides, perhaps of the same coin, but you absolutely must mitigate while you are enabling adaptation across the community. Frank, over to you. Ah, leadership. Um, think about your legacy. Uh, this is not one of the run-of-the-mill uh, issues that you can manage politically uh, with a view to the next election. Uh, this is likely uh, going to be uh, one of the things, if not the thing, that's going to define uh, whether history will see you uh, as a good prime minister or, or as a not-so-good prime minister. Um, and And I would extend that kind of advice actually to all politicians, uh, including the opposition, right? Um, Recognize that this is a truly big issue that defines our prosperity into the future. Um, and, and show some leadership, right? So, so don't look so much at, at the opinion polls and, and, you know, whatever worries there are about, you know, uh, minor changes in, in, in the composition of jobs in the economy, right? Explain to the Australian people as to why something needs to be done and how it can be done. And the last word to you, Quentin. Very easy. It's a six letter word. It's listen. L-I-S-T-E-N. Listen, listen, and listen. <laughs> but who are we listening to in this situation? Well, there's there's lots of experts in the public service that can give them good advice. There's experts beyond the public service. There's people in the communities. There's people who have been trying to give them advice for, for a long period of time now, uh, which he has ignored. So I would say listen to the advice he's getting from good people who are advising him and actually act on that. It's as straightforward as it's not, it's not like he has to search around for, for good advice. It's been delivered to him already. So 
what I mean by listen is to take it on board and then, of course, do something with it. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion and thank you all for sharing your insights and looking into your crystal ball and giving us some predictions about what we might see in climate policy in the year ahead. So thank you, Megan. Thank you, Tiana. Thank you, Quentin. And thank you, Frank. Thank you, Martin. Thank you. Thanks. That's great. Listeners, we're really keen to hear what you thought of the discussion. Please send any comments or questions our way. We're always really keen to hear them. You can find us on Facebook, where we are, Policy Forum Pod. Please do jump in and join the group there. On Twitter, where we're APPS, Apps Policy Forum, or shoot us a message at podcast at policyforum.net. And if today's conversation has inspired you to play a role in tackling climate change and developing in-depth understanding of climate change science and policy, then you might want to check out Crawford School's Master of Climate Change. You can find out all the information you need and how to apply at crawford.anu.edu.au forward slash study. And if you'd like to read more about the bushfires and climate policy, we have a dedicated section on Policy Forum with some of the region's leading experts analysing all aspects of the issues. We're also maintaining a daily live blog, pulling together some of the best analysis from all around the World Wide Web. So check it out at policyforum.net. And if you want to help communities who have been affected by the fires, check out the Victorian Country Fire Authority, the Red Cross, the Salvation Army, or Wires and Animal Rescue Collective. We will leave a link to all of those in the show notes. And one last thing before you go, if you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you have, then please hit subscribe. You can find Policy Forum Pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from and if you'd like to leave us a review that would be really welcome we'll be back next week with another policy forum pod but until then from me martin pierce cheerio selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.